welcome to episode 1279 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello. Hi, Ben. I wonder about these days when you got the four playoff games back to back to back to back, and it's something that I get excited about slash dread every year, and it happens Mm -hmm. generally twice. Uh, we and we're gonna have this on Friday. We're gonna have this on Monday. You get the four games all in a row, and if you want, you can watch like, I guess they're not all stringed exactly together, but you could watch like twelve to thirteen hours of consecutive baseball <laughs> if you wanted to. But when whenever I think about that, and whenever I think about expressing anything about that, how many people who aren't writers, or how many people who even are writers, do you think try or make any kind of effort to watch that? I mean, people work for one thing. Where this is a I Friday know. and a Monday, but also yeah. most people just want to watch their team or like one team mm-hmm. whoever the bandwagoning so like this this feels like it's one of those like writer specific and like niche writer specific kind of yeah opinions because even a lot of writers are covering one team primarily or, or at the game at a certain game so they can't see all the other games so there probably aren't that many people who are actually sitting down and marathoning all of these games but i do feel for fans in the postseason when they can't see the game of the team that they've been watching all season long. I I don't know if there's any way around it. I mean, no matter when you schedule playoff games, someone is going to complain. If it's late at night, it's think of the children. They can't stay up to see the game. If it's during the day, then it's people are at work. But it's tough because usually baseball is kind of a constant and most of the games are in the evening and at least during the week. And so you can look forward to having that as your nightly entertainment. And then the most important games of the year come along and you're in a conference call or something at work and I guess you know you can maybe have it on if you're lucky or or watch it online or if you're not blacked out or maybe listen to the radio or something but it's not the same I mean what's the argument against having just all the games at normal like after conventional work hours just what? all at the same time overlapping I mean, base, I mean you'll have like west coast east coast whatever depending on who's who's alive but mm-hmm. why I know that the the league doesn't want to have the games overlapping too much because of yeah. I don't know league reasons, but and uh, there are TV contracts that muddy the water somewhat. Yeah. But fans don't want this. I <laughs> no. I say that as someone who's been a baseball fan and remains a sort of baseball. Now, granted, this layout is is good for me, for you, for people in our position. Mm-hmm. But we're not we're not the target audience <laughs> here. We're gonna have to no. deal with it no matter what they do. So why? Why have this game at at 2 o'clock Eastern time? I remember when I was at college listening to the Padres play the Cardinals in the playoffs. I forgot what year it was, but whatever the year, the Cardinals always beat the Padres in the playoffs. But it's something I remember listening to in like the middle of the afternoon while I worked at a lab in Connecticut, which I didn't mind, I guess, because I was working in a lab in Connecticut. But still, if you were in San Diego, that's a morning game. Why? (laughs) Not only is it inconvenient for the fans of the team, but I'm... This is a soft argument, but it it makes it feel more casual. It doesn't feel like a playoff game. Like I can't imagine yeah. be having like a winner take all game five, which granted, I guess games five wouldn't happen that early in the day, but like an elimination game, one of the most important games of the season, and it's happening and like the sun's up in the middle of the mm-hmm. sky. It's like a birds are <laughs> chirping on a Tuesday. It's just the the yeah. setting isn't appropriate. Right. Yeah, I assume it's just that selling TV rights when you have overlapping games is probably less lucrative or not possible. I'm I'm sure they're maximizing revenue here, and, and baseball is this regional game, and so you can't probably have every game on nationally in primetime. I don't know, but it is kind of a, a bummer when some people can't see their team play in the playoffs, especially if you're rooting for a team that is not in the playoffs every year, and so it's sort of a special thing. But I don't know. That's the way it is. So we've got four games, and that's exciting, but... By the time a lot of you hear this episode, many of those games will be over, so we probably won't get into the minutia of previewing each of those games, but let's talk about the games that we have already seen, at least briefly, on Thursday night. The Brewers won, the Dodgers won, the Brewers' initial outgetter, as they call it. That bullpen game worked pretty well. The problem was actually their final outgetter, or who they hoped would be their final outgetter. Jeremy Jeffress actually blew a game, but otherwise it went according to plan. I think I saw a stat that 
The Brewers got 21 swings and misses in the first eight innings of that game, and that that exceeded the maximum for any of their starters this season. I think 20 was the maximum number of whiffs for any Brewers starter through eight. So the bullpen was dominant, and Christian Yelich was good and hit a homer and then drew a pivotal walk later in the game, and they ended up walking off. Corbin Burns, he was an interesting pitcher this season. He's Clearly got good stuff, good fastball, good slider, but he, he comes in, he throws hard. He was a guy who came in after Brandon Woodruff with the initial outgetter, and then the subsequent six more outgetter, I guess. Brandon Woodruff had an abbreviated start, but Corbin Burns is going to be an interesting guy to keep an eye on because he could be one of those live playoff arms who just comes out of nowhere. And like the Astros yeah. have Josh James on the roster who's going to try to do a similar thing, but mm-hmm. Burns this year, not to focus on Corbin Burns, he was not the most important player in the game, but. He had a, a really, really low contact rate allowed in the major leagues this year. His strikeout rate didn't quite match up with it, but something to watch because he looked very, very good. And honestly, all of the Brewers pitchers looked really good except yeah. for Jeremy Jeffers. But I was surprised at the end. Came down to Adam Ottavino working his second inning. Mm-hmm. And I know they talked about this a little bit on the broadcast, but the, the circumstances were that Ottavino was pitching. There were two outs and there were men in the corners and he was facing Mike Moustakis. And on deck was Manny Pena. One of the things about Manny Pena that's interesting is that he's a pretty good defensive catcher. But the other thing that's interesting is that he was a terrible hitter. He he does not hit well, and he is right-handed, both of which play into Adam Ottavino's... uh, I did Ottavino. Damn it, Smoltz. (laughs) Adam Ottavino play into his strengths. So I was surprised that when Ottavino uh, was facing Moustakas that he didn't just walk him to load the bases. I know that's a risk. I know he's not... He doesn't limit walks to such an extent that it's comfortable having him Mm -hmm. pitch with the bases loaded, but I was surprised in that moment that the Rockies chose to pitch to Moustakis instead of Pina, Moustakis being left-handed. And, and it, I mean, the way it worked out, Ottavino got ahead 0-2, and then he just, you know, gave up a line drive. So what are you going to do? This is all little negligible odds shifts, but it still surprised me. Yeah, and on the second to last pitch, he almost got the foul tip strikeout. It was so (laughs) close. They showed a a slow motion replay, and Moustakas had tipped it back into the glove, and it just like rattled around Walters' glove. It it, like hit one side of the glove, and then it hit the pocket, and then it hit the other side, and then it bounced out slowly, and he couldn't quite catch it, and that would have been the end of the inning, but it was not. And Adovino has been great all year, but his command has seemed somewhat off in this game and his previous game so he got the job done in that previous game and did not in this game but anyway Brewers uh, we thought were favored heading into the series and now obviously are in even better position than they were yeah, I wanted to, to talk about that last Ottavino plate appearance real quick because if if there's one thing that people know about Adam Ottavino, uh, it's that first, okay, two things. One, it's Ottavino, not Ottavino. So that's one thing that <laughs> most people know about him. But for another, he has a really, really good slider. That's his thing. He has like a one of those yeah. frisbee sliders, throws it all the time. So the, the last plate appearance, Ottavino against Moustakis, you probably know this. Many people listening to this probably know this. But Ottavino threw four fastballs, 95, 95, 96, 96. All of those fastballs were in the exact same spot to Moustakis. They were like slightly higher than the middle and they were slightly more away than the middle. They were virtually identical pitches and none of them were his best pitches. And now this is one of those, I don't know, Mitchell Lichtman kind of arguments where you go into it and it's really easy to say after the fact, always after the fact as a fan, how do you throw the same pitch four times in a row? But this is where the game theory is so interesting because Ottavina was asked about this after the game. And he was saying, well, you know, everyone knows that I throw a lot of sliders. I have a, a good slider. And I was just trying to read what what Moustakis was was looking for. And so by staying away from the slider, that you can like put yourself in the position of Mike Moustakis. You're up there and you're thinking, all right, I know this guy has a funny delivery and he has a really good slider. He's going to try to backfoot it at me eventually. Well, he didn't do it on the first pitch. Okay. Well, he didn't do it on the second pitch. Well, he didn't do it on the third pitch. All right. I mean, it's 0-2. He's got to do it. Well, he didn't do it on the fourth pitch. Now, Moustakis hit the line drive. You could say that he was on it. Nottavino was saying he wanted to throw that pitch higher than he did. But this is one of those situations. There's going to be a lot of situations in the playoffs this year where we'll look at a pitch sequence and think, well, he could have done something different. But we we honestly, we can't we can't say that ever. We can say that a pitch was not executed well, and Ottavino would agree that his last pitch was not executed well. But keep in mind... The previous pitch, which was virtually identical, got a foul tip that was nearly 
the third strike in a row, nearly yeah. the strikeout. So it's just one of those things where we can't criticize pitch sequences pretty much ever at all. You could, if you're Adam Ottavino, you could throw a hundred fastballs in a row, and maybe by like seventy-five, the hitters thinking, "I don't know if he has a feel for his slider today." But with <laughs> yeah. this one, this I don't think that you can be critical of the sequence. It's just an interesting sequence to look at because I don't know how many times Ottavino has thrown four identical fastballs in a row this year. Mm-hmm. Now, I have not read your most recent Christian Yelich post yet. Did you pinpoint how he became Barry Bonds in the second half of the season? No, I just identified <laughs> correlating fact. I mean, look, here's the thing. We're talking about Christian Yelich. He's hitting well. What is the one thing we've always suspected would happen if Christian Yelich were going to hit better? He would hit fewer ground balls. Bingo, he has been hitting far fewer ground balls over the past two months. Now, something that is interesting about what Yelich has been doing, like there's no swing change here. Yelich is not going to change his swing. He doesn't need to change his swing. His swing is great. He's a very, very good player. But what you can do with a swing is change your approach, change the pitches that you go after, change your aggressiveness, your selectivity, whatever. And what's what's happened is Christian Yelich's launch angle, if you will, his average launch angle has not really moved that much first half right. to second half, which you yeah. look at that and you think, okay, well, there's there's nothing here going on. His ground ball rate has changed quite a bit. He's hitting more balls in the air. And so what... What Yelich has done, he's still hitting some granders every so often. It happens almost half the time, honestly. And sometimes you just get on top of a pitch and it goes into the dirt. But what I what I did do is I isolated where he's made his best contact. And I like to do that mm-hmm. by looking at batted balls hit at least 100 miles per hour. Nice round number. Everyone loves the number 100. Unless you're a salesman, then you love the number 99. So <laughs> I looked at everything Yelich has hit, 100 plus miles per hour. And then I looked at the average launch angle because I don't really care what a batter does when he makes bad contact because the batter's not intending to do that, right? Like if you mm-hmm. if you hit the ball 60 miles per hour, who cares what the launch angle is? You made a mistake. So by isolating the good contact, all of a sudden, his launch angle has changed a lot. From the first half to the second half, it's changed almost 10 degrees. His, his average good contact launch angle has gone up the second most of any hitter in baseball. That's interesting to me because what that tells me is that Yelich is intending to hit the ball for more power. So I'm mm-hmm. I mean, maybe that is a swing change, I guess, but I think more likely it's just a, a change in mindset, a change in the pitches he's trying to attack. So it looks like Christian Yelich is trying to hit for more power and and not to spoil the surprise, but it started working like two months ago <laughs> and he hasn't yeah. stopped. He has a second yeah. he has one of the best second halves, genuinely yeah. one of the best second it halves really in modern history. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, and Braves-Dodgers, there wasn't a whole lot of suspense here. Jack Peterson (laughs) hit a home run in in the first plate appearance for the Dodgers, and that ended up being the winning run because the Dodgers did not allow a run. Ryu was really great for seven innings. A lot of people were wondering why he was starting and not Kershaw. It really doesn't matter, and Kershaw gets extra rest, and Ryu was great. I mean, the decision was fine whether or not he was great, (laughs) but he was great, and... uh, the Dodgers hit a bunch of home runs, and <laughs> Muncy, of course, hits a home run and walks three times. I mean, Dodgers are really good. We said this yesterday, and you know now they're up one, and they have Kershaw and Bueller. So that's a, a pretty scary spot for the Braves to be in. Yeah, so I was looking—first of all, I'll, I'll point out that this season, uh, Ryu and Kershaw, very similar— if you uh, look at them now, now granted Kershaw threw twice as many innings, but if you just, I know he's Clayton Kershaw, like I'm not an idiot, but I will just, <laughs> point, like Ryu and Kershaw had the same walk rate. Ryu actually had a higher strikeout rate. Kershaw had the worse ERA. He had the worse mm-hmm. FIP minus. He had the same X FIP minus. I don't need to get into the numbers like that, but like Ryu has been really good. He's been Super good. He's basically where he was before he started having injury problems. So between Ryu and Kershaw, you pick your lefty with a with a curveball here. But then you look at the game itself, and yeah, he was kind of got kind of got boring after a while. It's mm-hmm. just like a, the Braves never threatened. So as soon as Max Muncy hit his three run homer, we should just have like a, a whole month of podcasts about Max Muncy <laughs> because my my goodness, yeah. <laughs> I don't know yeah. if there's been a player who's more overachieved his preseason. Projections, but anyway, Ryu is great. Looking at the, I was surprised looking at the Fangraphs playoff odds, and I think maybe you were looking at these too. 
because the playoff odds gave coming into the series the Dodgers a three to one chance of advancing <laughs> over the Braves, yeah. which is uh, huge. <laughs> you don't expect yeah. that. And then I was like, well, why? Why do the playoff odds do that? The Braves this season were good, but the thing is that the Dodgers were a lot better. <laughs> and I know yeah. that the record doesn't doesn't reflect that, but if you look at the Fangraphs has a projected standings page. And if you just looked at how the playoff rosters project, I know this is going to sound weird, but the Braves actually project as like a 500 baseball team. I know they just won <laughs> 90 games. I know that. But just based on the projections, they project as like a 500 team and the Dodgers project as much, much better than that. When you have a team with the Dodgers projection, like it's a team with the Braves projection, it turns out in a five-game series, the better team is expected to win like 75% of the time. Now, the Braves are presumably a little better than projections but like this is not a great team it's not a great pitching staff there's not a bunch of pitchers i would trust Fultonavich i i like enough but he lasted all of two innings and mm-hmm. the dodgers have the far superior lineup they have the better depth i don't think this is like a three to one chance series although now that the dodgers are up a game <laughs> it probably is worse mm-hmm. than that but the braves are a real underdog and and they did not do anything to change my opinion on that and get one Mm-hmm. Yeah, and speaking of just like live playoff arms and hoping to catch lightning in a bottle, the Braves just kind of have a new bullpen for this series. <laughs> like the a lot of the guys who pitched the most innings for them, Dan Winkler, Jesse Biddle, Shane Carl, they're just not even on the roster. And instead, it's like Tuki Toussaint and Chad Sabatka and Freed and just all these guys who barely pitched any innings for them this year. They're just kind of going with the guys they think have the live arms and are going to be better right now. So it's sort of risky, but I think, you know, they can't really compare to the Dodgers' talent, so they have to take risks. And I don't know whether those risks will work. They do have, of course, Charlie Culberson, who Brian Snitker said has probably been arguably maybe our most valuable player. (laughs) Probably been arguably maybe our most valuable player. (laughs) I... What is what does that mean in the end when you when you introduce enough overlapping caveats? Like what are you doing with the probabilities there? Yeah, it means Freddie Freeman is your best player or Acuna <laughs> is your best player, and you're just saying something nice about Charlie Culberson who uh, has filled in at positions and has gotten really clutch hits, and you know is now filling in for Densby Swanson, and he's certainly been better than anyone expected he would be, including the Dodgers who traded him to the Braves. So he's been good, and uh, probably, arguably, maybe <laughs> the Braves' most valuable player. <laughs> I uh, so speaking of of new bullpens, this isn't exactly the same thing, but I don't I don't know if you have taken a look at the the Astros playoff roster. Have you? No. Mm-mm. Okay. Well, it's great. I'll tell you that part. You'll you'll figure <laughs> yeah. that out. Oh right, they like left off half a playoff roster yeah. off their playoff. So roster. <laughs> here here are pitchers who did not make the Astros playoff bullpen. Did not make the Astros playoff bullpen. Brad Peacock, yeah. Hector Rondon, yeah. uh, Chris Davinsky. And and Joe Smith, all of those pitchers are good. All of those pitchers yeah. not only struck out at least a batter in inning. Brad Peak this year, three hundred thirty six pitchers threw at least fifty innings. Three hundred thirty six. Mm-hmm. Brad Peacock was twelfth in strikeout rate. He had uh, the same strikeout rate as Brad Hand. He was he had a better walk rate than Brad Hand. Mm-hmm. You know the Indians' best relief pitcher. He's <laughs> he's like he's basically Adam Onovino. He's there with Jose Leclerc. Like the Astros left off. Rondon led them in saves this season. <laughs> yeah. So Peacock, Rondon, Smith, and uh, and Davinsky could be like the four best pitchers in most teams' bullpens. And the yeah. Astros don't even – it's not like they chose bad pitchers to take over. They just have so many good pitchers. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that Josh James made their playoff roster because a lot of people don't know much about him that's a Carson Sestouli thing he's just like a kid mm-hmm. who comes up and th- throws 100 miles per hour and strikes everybody out I like yep. that he's up to be in the playoff roster he's got a, a fresh arm but I just couldn't believe how much depth the Astros pitching staff has and I I wonder you can see this with the Braves too you can see this with with a few teams a few pitchers who have been left off playoff rosters there is so much it seems like anecdotally so much emphasis that teams put on like how a, a reliever's final month and you look at like all these relievers who have been left off rosters like struggled in September over very small samples, but they had like high ERAs or a bunch of walks, not many strikeouts. And 
I don't know what it is, but it makes me wonder whether this is like a small sample size overreaction or whether we should take these small samples to be more more credible and more meaningful because maybe they are just signs of pitchers who have run out of gas. You can, I get by that relievers mm-hmm. run out of gas down the stretch, but it's just always funny to see a team being like, well, this guy had a 982 ERA in September as a relief pitcher yeah. in like seven and a third innings, so therefore he's not going to pitch in <laughs> right. October. That seems absurd, but I mean, I none of us know as much as the teams do. Yeah. Well, speaking of running out of gas down the stretch, Chris Sale, we talked about him briefly (laughs) yesterday. I wrote about him now at The Ringer. We'll probably just talk a little bit about him and then get to some emails so as not to have this entire episode be out of date by the time you hear it. (laughs) So... Chris Sale, we're not going to have a stat blast today, but I have a sort of stat blast that I performed for this article that includes TOPS+. Don't say we're not doing a stat blast. Just say that it's a stat blast. Okay, yeah. Everyone will stop listening if we say there's no (laughs) stat blast. So this stat does have a TOPS+. So Chris Sale just has not been the same guy this year. Certainly, I mean, he's barely pitched in the second half because he was on the DL twice with shoulder inflammation. But historically speaking, over his whole career, Chris Sale has not been the same guy in the second half of the season and specifically in September, October of the regular season. So I looked for all active pitchers with at least 500 total innings, and I looked for guys with the worst TOPS plus, that is their OPS allowed relative to their own overall OPS allowed. The worst TOPS plus among active pitchers with at least 500 total innings in the second half is Chris Sale. He has a 117 TOPS plus in the second half. And then the worst pitcher in terms of September, October TOPS plus also Chris Sale at Mm. 141. And that is a pretty big gap. And that's not even because of this year, really. I mean, I guess it's a little bit because of this year, but he pitched okay when he was pitching. He just mostly wasn't pitching. But he just has a history of not pitching as well in the second half of the season and particularly late in the season. And you could speculate about why that is, whether it's because of his build and he's such a string bean and maybe he wears down. And who knows? Maybe that's unfair. Maybe it's not that. But he has just historically shown that. And that's even including his time as a reliever, which probably skews things a little. If you just look at his splits as a starter by month, he is just worse at everything, basically, in September. His his velocity is lower. His strikeout minus walk rate is lower. His home runs per nine is way up. So that's, like, the big thing is that he just gives up lots of dingers. In August, he gives up 1.1 homers per nine, which is a lot higher than in any previous month. And then in September, October, 1.5. And a lot of it is BABIP also, but... He also just gives up a ton of hard hit balls late in the year, too. So he's just, you know, coughing up a a bunch of meatballs, it it seems like. And, you know, Chris Sale at his worst, like his career monthly splits as a starter in September, October, 3.84 ERA and (laughs) 3.84 FIP. So that's the best month for a lot of starters, but it's by far Chris Sale's worst month. And so... I think that makes him mysterious and fascinating right now. I I think he's like the player I'm most interested to see how he performs in the playoffs because it's a really big deal for Boston, whether you have the ace Chris Sale, the first half Sale, or the September-October Sale, the guy who doesn't go deep into games and isn't that good when he's pitching because the Red Sox do not have a great bullpen. It's probably the biggest area of mismatch between them and the Yankees. They do not want to go reliever for reliever. They're not going to win that war. So they need their starters to be good and to go deep into games. And right now, nobody knows whether Chris Sale is capable of that. And he's coming off the start with the worst average four-seam fastball velocity of his career. His max velocity was down significantly too. He says it's mechanical Cora says it's mechanical. Sale says he's straightened it out, that it was an extension problem, that he wasn't driving the way he wanted to, and that he's fixed it. But who knows? We will see on Friday and in any of his subsequent starts. But he's got to be good, I think, for the Red Sox to really make a run. Right. Nothing nothing changes the calculus quite like a pitcher whose velocity is suddenly dropped off without explanation. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't remember. I mean, we've talked on this podcast before about Patrick Corbin and the weird thing that he did this year. Yeah. Forgot how recently we talked about this. But one of the things that you'll notice about Patrick Corbin when people go back and evaluate his free agency case is that 
All of a sudden, between starts this year, he decided to lose three miles per hour off all of his pitches. <laughs> no reason was given, and then he was fine. He just kept yep. pitching, and he kept striking people out, and absolutely no idea what happened there. Never seen it before. Yep. Generally, when that happens, it's bad. <laughs> so Chris Sale, you, depending on how you look at it, you could say he's lost six miles per hour. Is yeah. he, When he came off the DL, every start got a little bit worse in terms of how hard he was throwing. So mm-hmm. I... <laughs> we've we've been through enough injury scares. People keep waiting for Chris Sale to be hurt, right? This is just some, and eventually, yep. in like ten years, he's finally going to go on the DL with like a rolled ankle, and people are going to be like, "We knew it." But <laughs> you you keep thinking like a, something's going to happen. So like we're already at heightened awareness, and then when you see a velocity drop off like this, like it's it's really it looks bad. No mm-hmm. no pitcher would invite this to happen to himself. So no. the explanation that it's mechanical, I could, I understand. I want it to be true. I assume it was true. I try to assume that things aren't injury related. But this is not a problem that just started. His velocity has been down for a few Mm -hmm. starts in a row so i just wonder why wouldn't why didn't they try to fix it before if they did how come now we should believe that they've been successful in fixing it as opposed to before because in the last start it was worse than ever like you said yeah worst velocity of his career yeah and you know who knows maybe he was pacing himself or taking it easy or i mean the red sox were just kind of coasting down the stretch and sale was trying to heal his shoulder and maybe he wasn't pushing himself the way he will be in a playoff game and sometimes if you have an injury it leads to mechanical problems because you're trying to protect that part of you that was weakened and maybe you don't even realize it but that can happen like that happened with Corey Kluber in the middle of the season he had the worst I think it was seven start stretch of his career as a starter or at least since his rookie season he was just pretty bad for several starts and he had had a a knee problem a sore knee and he had gotten an injection to try to help the sore knee and then he was still bad after that and everyone was thinking well his knee is still busted but he said no it's not the knee the knee's fine it's just mechanical because you know he screwed himself up when the knee was sore and then he fixed whatever it was and he was his usual dominant self down the stretch so it's totally possible that that could happen for Chris Sale but The velocity drop is worrisome. The whole history of him pitching worse late in the season is worrisome. And we will see. He is facing the best hitting team in the league. And again, that's an area where he just really needs to be good. I mean, I don't want to say that any player is totally pivotal and a team can't win without him. Like weird things can happen and Chris Sale can be terrible. And then the Red Sox bullpen can be great for three games and that'll be that. But if you had to pinpoint one factor that could swing this series for me, it is which version of Chris Sale we see. How many times do you think we are going to see a graphic or hear announcers talk about the postseason history of the Red Sox starting rotation? <laughs> uh, are oh, we? Are you as sick of this? Uh, I mean, so here's what here's what I'll tell you now. Uh, so far, I've seen no references to it because the series hasn't begun, and I'm already <laughs> tired <laughs> of it. <laughs> yeah. Because what Sale has basically not been in the playoffs, and David Price, of course, has a, a bad playoff history, and Rick Porcello, I think, has a bad playoff history and mm-hmm. has Nate Yovaldi been in the playoffs I don't remember mm-hmm. well here's the thing even if he has it probably hasn't been for very long so I'll, the answer I'll tell you the answer is no no mm-hmm. Yovaldi has not pitched in the playoffs so that makes him the most successful member of the Red Sox <laughs> starting rotation I guess in playoff yeah. history but I don't know I think we've talked before about how there's almost certainly nothing there but this is one of those things that it's it's serves a purpose in that it it does serve as a narrative you can honestly say we know for a fact david price does have an era over five in the playoffs mm-hmm. what that means i don't know who cares he's two and eight if you like assigning records to people so you look at price and he's throwing like 73 playoff innings and his strikeouts are okay and his walks are okay. like i don't want to like dive into and analyze the numbers but it is interesting although you could also look at price last year in in uh two you you remember it i had forgotten but he did come out of the bullpen for the red sox last year and he didn't allow a mm-hmm. run over six and two-thirds innings so i don't know how long these things are going to stretch but if we're moving on i think we're moving on from the clayton kershaw postseason narrative then i guess then mm-hmm. the red sox rotation is going to be next and there's just so much the perception of there being so much pressure on the red sox now and i get it because they what did they tie the their all-time win record or something or the most wins for the team in yeah, like 70 years? Yeah. 
Yeah, something mm-hmm. like that. But the fact of the matter is that now they're in the playoffs where the Yankees roster is at least as good as theirs is, and everybody mm-hmm. is good. And odds are, odds are very good. Red Sox are not going to win the World Series, but I'm sure that if and when the Red Sox lose, people will handle it with maturity. (laughs) Yeah, Russell Carlton once wrote, inspired by an email to this podcast, actually, about how you never really have a, a favorite to win I mean, you have a you have a favorite. You have a team that's most likely to win in the playoffs, of course. But you never have a, a team that is more likely to win than the field, because in order to have that, I think he calculated that you would need a team that won 113 games during the World Series to be even a 50 percent favorite to win the World Series at the start of the playoffs, and that's you know probably a, a real 113 wins, not like a lucky 113 wins. So you just don't really get that kind of team often or ever. So it's always kind of a toss up. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's do a few emails here. David Barry, Patreon supporter, says postseason hypothetical for you guys. How many consecutive seasons of losing in the World Series could a team go before that manager is fired? Follow up. Is that number higher or lower than it was 15 years ago? My guess is higher. Losing in the World Series. Did the Buffalo Bills have the same head coach for the four straight Super Bowl losses? <laughs> You're this asking is, the wrong uh, guy. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you what. I bet by the time I'm done with this sentence, I will probably have, have the answer to it. However, there is also, <laughs> semicolon, a decent chance that I won't. Ugh, why is this Wikipedia page so complicated? <laughs> So the Buffalo Bills, okay. So in uh, in 1990 yeah. to 1993, Buffalo Bills, Mark Levy was their head coach. He was the head coach for a team that lost four consecutive Super Bowls. So the answer to your question is that I have a comparison from a completely different sport from <laughs> three decades ago. And in that case, they kept the same coach. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know if this is true. My sense, because football is stupider, that football is more reactionary to losses and mm-hmm. things like that. So I would I would think that uh, if there were going to be turnover, that you would see it more likely to happen in football than baseball. And mm-hmm. in football, it didn't happen in the one case that I can think of where a team did something like this. So I think if a team went to the World Series four years in a row, you would keep the manager you would try to keep many of the same players that's a hell of a baseball team very disappointing baseball team but it's still a very good baseball mm-hmm. team I think that you keep the manager and relative to 15 years ago i guess yeah it's more likely you would keep the manager i guess than before i think that in any case the team would keep the manager but certainly now there's just so mm-hmm. much job security when you're good that yeah. uh, i mean joe girardi accepted i guess but right otherwise yeah well that's what i was going to bring up i mean i think obviously it depends why and how you lose the World Series, I think. Like, if the manager makes some glaring, unforgivable mistake every time, then he'll probably be let go, I think. So if he doesn't do anything wrong and it's just the randomness of a short series and he's great at his job, then I think he could hang on to that forever basically like i i don't know that he would ever get fired if he doesn't if there's no cause other than i don't know superstition or something so i think in that sense teams are more likely to not fire a guy for a bad reason and just to make a change for the sake of making a change so i I think you could probably go longer but on the other hand if there is something you're not doing all that well I think you are now more likely to get replaced than you were previously because a team is not going to keep you, I don't think, just because you're making the World Series. They have to feel like you're actually the manager that gives them the best chance. And Joe Girardi got within one win of getting to the World Series last year, and he was replaced because seemingly the Yankees didn't like how he interacted with young players or you know, incorporated analytics or both or whatever it was. So I think in that sense, the manager is seen as more disposable these days because he's kind of a cog in the machine rather than the leader who is doing everything. And so I think the front office would consider him more fungible, more replaceable. And in that sense, I'd say that the number is actually lower in some ways today. Okay, question for you. Let's uh, two two different managers. So one of the managers leads a team to the World Series and loses four years in a row, all right? Mm -hmm. And the second manager 
leads a team to the World Series five years in a row, wins the first one, then loses four in a row. Which <laughs> of those managers has more job security after the four consecutive World Series losses? I think definitely winning the one gets you a longer leash. I mean, it's like Bobby Cox lasted forever with one World Series win and otherwise not even getting there most of the time or not winning, even though the Braves were in the playoffs year after year. So yeah, I think once you win one, because then you can't say that the manager like can't, he doesn't have what it takes to get them over the hump or something. Mm -hmm. He did it once. So yeah, I think that gets you uh, indefinite job security. I can't figure it out. Just I was thinking of Joe Madden when I was bringing this up, and there's all this talk about how the Cubs could have parted ways with Joe Madden because they're just they feel like they're underachieving. But on the other hand, they have not parted ways with Joe Madden, so maybe it's mm-hmm. all just media speculation. But I do think that there's at least some kind of argument to be made that if you win one and then you don't, then people are more likely to feel let down as opposed to thinking like, oh, we keep getting almost there. We're just a coin flip away. But I don't know. Mm-hmm. I could be I could be full of crap. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Another question. You know what? I'm just going to make this a stat blast. I I lied. There's a stat blast. I just want to play the song. So this is a question from Patreon supporter Jacob Mooney, who says, Feel free to take this question as a general guessing game if you've no way of knowing, but the Orioles beat the Astros on the last day of the regular season, and earlier they beat the Red Sox on Game 158 of the season. That means that they twice, as a team with 100 losses logged already for the season, beat a team that had already logged 100 wins. How many times do you think this has ever happened? Has 100-loss team ever beaten 200-win teams after all three got over their thresholds? Is this the only Baltimore Orioles question you'll receive in the month of October? (laughs) No, actually, we're about to answer another one, sort of, but... This uh, is not easy to determine, but Dan Hirsch of Baseball Reference answered it very quickly and easily. Well, for him, it's easy. For us, it's not. But the answer is that the Orioles doing this, having 100 losses and beating a 100-win team twice this year, that was two of the seven times it has ever happened. So it had only happened five times before this year. And not since, actually, 1954. In 1954, the Yankees beat the Philadelphia Athletics twice, September 24th and September 26th. And in 1932, the Yankees, it's usually the Yankees, beat the Red Sox on September 25th. And then 1907, the Cubs beat the St. Louis Browns twice in October. So it had only happened those five times, and it's kind of curious that... It happened all in years before the 162-game schedule. I was sort of expecting that if this had happened, it would be then, because it's easier to get to 100 wins, 100 losses, if you're playing more than 154 games. But nope, first time this had happened since the 50s. And I don't know, I guess maybe there were more lopsided teams at that time. There were teams that were barely contending and competing and then teams that had all the talent. So maybe it was just more common as a percentage of teams to get to 100 wins or 100 losses, although, you know, there were fewer teams overall. Not only did the Orioles beat the Astros in the last game of the season, but they actually held them to one hit. They won four to nothing. <laughs> they uh, out hit them eight to one. The Orioles pitchers were Jimmy Yakabonis, Paul Fry, and Michael Givens. So one of those pitchers, good. One of those pitchers, uh, I don't know, kind of like pitch effectsy interesting that's paul fry uh we'll maybe get into that over the winter then one of those pitchers being jimmy yakabonis the astros started charlie morton then brad peacock pitched then chris Tavensky, then josh james colin McHugh, Lance mccullers finished by raymond Goodwan. but the astros lineup was springer altuve regman gonzalez guriel gaddis reddick stacy camp mm-hmm. like not a terrible mm-hmm. lineup and look one game is one game but I think that any game where you get one hit by the 2018 Baltimore Orioles is a game of, <laughs> yeah. of some import. And so it is interesting because, uh-huh. look, obviously nothing to play for at all. Astros doing nothing but just mm-hmm. trying to stay healthy, not trying to get hurt and ruin the postseason. But something to be said about the impact of giving a shit 
because <laughs> yeah. I don't think the Astros would have cared at all about that game. And it just so happens that they lost. Now, I don't know what mm-hmm. the Orioles were playing for either in that circumstance, but you could say that even though this is the last game and no one is paying attention, maybe they're all playing for their jobs or something. They're just trying to make a good impression. The Orioles maybe just trying to get as many wins as possible because like, it's more embarrassing to go 46 and 116 than 47 and 115. <laughs> oh my God, they were bad. But still, <laughs> yeah. it's interesting to, that they that they one hit the Astros in that game. Now, you could also say it's just as interesting that the Astros won all three of the previous games in that same series. Yeah, right. All right. Jenny asks, since the recent wave of teams using an opener, I'm wondering why teams haven't shuffled their lineups accordingly yet. It's my understanding that starting pitchers are known to each team ahead of the game. So why wouldn't team A just put the bottom of the order up in the first inning if team B is starting an opening pitcher? It seems obvious since the number of teams using an opener is so large, considering how slowly baseball typically adopts such a drastic change. Are managers afraid to disrupt some sort of balance that happens when a lineup is pretty much the same for a whole season? What am I missing? Well, you are what I guess you are missing is that if you put the bottom of the lineup at the top, then the bottom of the lineup players will get more plate appearances and that's bad. Yes, so that's what teams are that's what teams are trying to avoid. Now you can you could say that there's also maybe something to the idea of players get accustomed to the lineup positions that they're in. You could also say, as the contrary argument, that pitchers get accustomed to the roles that they have and then you start <laughs> yeah. using the opener and it doesn't matter anymore. But if you look at a team like the the Astros frequently they'll start with Springer, Altuve, and Bregman. That's three consecutive right handed hitters and th- those are probably their three best hitters. And so the Astros wouldn't really want to move them around too much, certainly not as long as Carlos Correa is not at 100%. You can look at what the Angels were also vulnerable to this because they had a right-handed top of the lineup, and you want your best hitters up there. And even even with the platoon disadvantage, they are still... You'd still rather have George Springer, Jose Altuve, and Alex Bregman at 1, 2, and 3 than, I don't know, which way is Jake Marisnik bat? Is he a righty or is he a lefty? I've never had to think about this before. He's a righty, <laughs> so that's bad. What about Martin Maldonado? Does he bat righty? Nope, he's a righty too. Okay, well, what about, I don't know, Tyler White? Is he a... No, he's a righty. Jesus Christ. Well, the Astros have a bunch of right-handed hitters on the team. I don't know. Let's go with Marwin Gonzalez. I think he switch hits, right? So you'd sure. still... But I guess they bat him lead... Anyway, I think generally it's just not worth the effort because the manager would look at it and think, well, I still want to give my best hitters the most played appearances. It just so happens that, well, I guess we're we're going to see uh, a righty to start things off. But, you know, if you have mm-hmm. a good lefty, maybe you want to put him up there. Uh, maybe, like if you're the, the Cardinals, for example, and you hear that the Brewers are going to use Dan Jennings as a lefty to get Matt Carpenter out to lead off the game, maybe – move Matt Carpenter to second instead of first. Like that, Mm, you could probably get away with. Now, I don't know if that changes the Brewers calculus, but still, it is something you can tweak. But like, importantly, it's important to understand these things make such a small difference. The opener Mm -hmm. is like, it's it's so not dramatic a shift Mm -hmm. in the chances of winning that it's it's uh, it's more of a dramatic shift in how we tell the story of the game but it really doesn't do that much for a team we're talking like maybe maybe one percent odds of winning maybe mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah i mean our our attention to it has been somewhat disproportionate to how much it actually helps it's just a it's a novel thing and it's uh bold in some ways so we've talked about it a bunch but yeah, I think the the bullpen game, which we should distinguish from the opener, the bullpen game is is a bigger advantage if you do it in the right situation, I think. But that's something you probably can't do quite as often, but you can mm-hmm. in the postseason. So, right. all right. Question from Jeff in San Francisco. In episode 1230, Ben responded to an email in which I asked whether Madison Bumgarner was preferable as a hitter to the 2018 version of Chris Davis. I must admit to being a bit surprised when Ben definitively answered Davis. That was back in June. Chris Davis didn't get better in 2018. After a quick look at Fangraphs, it seems that Davis's 2018 stats are comparable to Bumgarner's career hitting numbers. In retrospect, would the Orioles have been better off if Bumgarner had taken all of Davis's at-bats in 2018? For the purpose of the question, assume that Bumgarner doesn't get hurt in spring training and hits without the rust of inaction. If not Bumgarner, is there another pitcher that could have been better? Can I say it? Can I say it? Can I say it? 
Yeah. Madison Bumgarner this year had a WRC plus of negative one. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Madison Bumgarner is not actually a good hitter. I don't think he's he's good for a pitcher, I guess. But again, this year he hit 159, 174, 205. I mean, I still don't think that there is any, if we could replay this season a million times, I don't think there is any pitcher other than like Michael Lorenzen or, you know, <laughs> Shohei Otani or someone like someone who's kind of a, a two-way player or, or can be. Other than that, I, I just don't think there's a pitcher I would take over Chris Davis because A, I mean, Chris Davis had a 46 WRC+. plus. There were still only six pitchers who finished above that with at least 30 plate appearances, and that's even with small sample randomness. And Zach Greinke is the only active pitcher with at least 100 career plate appearances and a WRC plus of at least 50, and he's at 53. Mm -hmm. So there just aren't actually any good pitcher hitters, and I don't think Davis is actually a true talent 46. I mean, he's bad, but I don't think he's quite that bad probably if you replayed the season a million times. So... I just don't think there is any pitcher I would take over Chris Davis as bad as he was. Now, I, I want to share a fun fact with you that I only just discovered. Okay, so this year, there were 77 pitchers who batted at least 30 times. Okay. Uh, Bumgarner batted like 46 times or something. Yeah. Uh, unsurprisingly, uh, if you're out there listening, pitchers see a lot of fastballs when they're batting because they are bad. Clay yeah. Buckholtz saw the highest rate of fastballs, 84%. Brandon McCarthy, also 84%. Terrible hitter. If you're listening to this, Brandon McCarthy, you suck at hitting, but you know that. <laughs> Chad Bettis, Mike fulton Dan Straley, bad hitters, all around 80% fastballs. I'm going to read to you the bottom five, the bottom five fastball rates for pitchers as batters. This is a uh, rate okay. of fastballs seen. So, fifth place, Tyson Ross, 60%. Whatever. Fourth place, Joe Musgrove, 60%. Whatever. Third place, Mike Montgomery, 59%. Whatever. Second place and first place, they're basically together. Madison Bumgarner and Michael Lorenzen, 42%. 42%. The separation between them and the next pitcher is enormous. 16 percentage points. Lorenzen and Bumgarner are the only two pitchers that other pitchers face and actually think about. And uh, Lorenzen <laughs> yeah. is good, and Bumgarner has been good, but this year was was not. So the lowest rate of fastballs in his career, uh, not a surprise because pitchers are onto it. But it turns out, this, and this is something that Sam sort of alluded to when he was talking about position players pitching. This is something that I think you are also essentially arguing here about Davis. When pitchers care about mm-hmm. the batter, then the pitchers are really good. And when yeah. pitchers are batting against pitchers, pitchers are inclined to take that off. But as soon as you do something, or at least a little after you do something that makes people notice, the pitchers are going to pitch you hard, and then they're going to they're mm-hmm. going to put you away. That's why Bumgarner was right. bad. Yeah. So as truly truly terrible as pitchers' offensive stats are overall, it's skewed by the fact that most pitchers facing those pitchers are like taking a break during that play. It's <laughs> like if they were all max effort and trying to go after him like they would any regular hitter, then the numbers would be even worse. So I I think there's some distortion there. And even so, pitchers are terrible at hitting. (laughs) And that's why Lorenzen this year was a very good hitter. He slugged 7-10, and that's with pitchers trying to get him out. So Michael Lorenzen could be actually good. Madison Mm -hmm. Bumgarner, uh, not, not so much. Mm -hmm. All right. And then Matthew asked the question. I'll just summarize it to save some time. Basically, there is a dysfunctional front office and the GM signs the bad Chris Davis instead of the good Chris Davis. And uh, Matthew wants to know. How long would it take the GM to finally realize that his team got Orioles Chris Davis instead of Athletics Chris Davis? Assuming 2018 quality of play, if the GM only looked at box scores, what if the GM also looked at traditional stats? What if the GM also looked at advanced stats? So how quickly could he tell that it wasn't just like good Chris Davis in a slump? It was actually the different Chris Davis. We're keeping the same performances, you see yes. it said? Mm-hmm. Uh and he can't talk to anyone. He's he's not <laughs> no. watching his team. He's not watching. No. I'm, now I'm going to tell you. There's one distinguishing feature about <laughs> each one of them that I guess yes. the GM just doesn't realize. Doesn't uh, no a month? I yeah. guess. Yeah. I, right. The the basic box score stats. I mean, that would take a while because he doesn't know that 
he doesn't know what the final stats are, presumably. So he just sees the the slump and the guy hitting well. So, I mean, any good hitter can have a terrible month. No, not... Well, I don't know. If he doesn't know that, like, that they end up having such drastically different seasons, then it would take a long time, right? Because he doesn't know that Chris Davis is going to mm. be the worst player in baseball. He knows Chris Davis from before. So that kind of, I guess, should we say it's like 2019, but they repeat their seasons basically. So he knows that Chris Davis was terrible already. That makes this a little easier. So in that case, the thing is, Sam and I talked, I believe it was on episode 988, we answered a question. What the hell? About how, <laughs> how quickly Mike Trout, you could distinguish Mike Trout from other players. So like if you just how had- did you, I'm sorry, how did you do that? How did you have that <laughs> actually, recall? I, I didn't actually. <laughs> I did some <laughs> some research and uh, I asked a, a few longtime listeners if they remembered this. And Darius <sighs> Austin of Bash to the Pet actually was able to pinpoint 988. So that, that was not a miraculous <laughs> retrieval by me. Uh, but we we talked about like if you just had a bunch of stats and the names were anonymized and you didn't know who anyone was, how quickly could you discern Mike Trout? And I don't remember exactly what we said, but I think that it really makes all the difference if you have the advanced stats, because if you have like stat cast and, you know, plate discipline stats, and I mean, you could tell one hitter from another based on a single batted ball or a single throw from the field, I mean, or a single runtime from home to first. So if you have that stuff, you can tell, oh, this is not that guy, it's this guy. So... If you have that, I mean, instantly, but if you just have the basic box score stats or traditional stats, it's going to take a while because there can be random variants in good and bad players' performance. Now, here's the thing about this hypothetical. So we're, we're thinking, how, how long is it before the GM realizes that they signed the wrong Chris yeah, Davis? made a terrible mistake. Yeah. You have to be open to the idea that you signed the wrong Chris Davis. You have to, you have, to have in your mind the possibility, the inkling of a possibility that, oh, yes. I have signed the wrong baseball player with the same name, which is not something mm -hmm. that would occur to an executive after any amount of time. Because presumably you're how do how do you conduct a negotiation? Okay, forget that part of the hypothetical. I guess nothing nothing face to face here. No press conference, even though you signed a, no. a prominent hitter. But mm -hmm. it would take after if somebody came up to you after like a month and a half, and they're like, "Hey, hey, just just so you know, I don't know if you know this, you signed the wrong Chris Davis." Then you'd be like, "Oh, oh, I see it." But until then, you'd be like, "There's, there's no way. This is, yeah. this is an embarrassing slump. I made a mistake." But it hasn't even crossed my mind that I just straight <laughs> up signed the wrong baseball player. It would never, it would never occur to you as an option. Just yeah. like it would never occur to someone. We've had that Clayton Kershaw hypothetical of like he gives up a hit on every pitch or whatever, mm -hmm. or every ball in play. We've had a few of those hypotheticals, and it would never occur to a GM to be like, "Oh." He's cursed. It's a right. curse and it's real. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the other complication here is that these two Chris Davises, in theory, are sort of similar hitters. I mean, <laughs> they're both kind of low to medium average ish. Well, one is a 247 hitter and the other is worse than that. But, you know, neither one is like a batting title contender. They both sort of strike out a lot, one more than the other. But, you know, they're they're powerful sluggers who, like, DH and stuff. You couldn't even, like, tell from the position in the box score necessarily. So, I mean, if you had that, if you had, you know, like, one of them is stealing a bunch of bases in a game, you could probably figure out that it's, the, it's a different guy or something. But neither of these guys really does that. So that complicates this, too, I think, in that, you know, in theory, they're similar sort of stylistic. Yeah, no, absolutely. They have had very, uh, until this season, their numbers were a great parallel with yeah. one another. One of the Chris Davises was more inconsistent than the other, but I guess we saw that again in 2018. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, quick answer to one last one here. 
Ronak says, I'm sure you've seen the extremely remarkable and improbable highlight of a Red Sox fan throwing a home run ball from the stands at John Carl Stanton while he was rounding the bases and actually hitting him. My question is, what would happen if a rule were added to baseball that ruled that the batter were out if a fan successfully threw a ball directly <laughs> at a runner from the stands? Would this strengthen the benefits of home field advantage, given this would happen to away teams? Would batters be incentivized to run faster and more deceptively around the bases with (laughs) (laughs) jukes and (laughs) sidesteps? Would teams try to put fans with stronger arms in the outfield stands? Obviously, this would be a dangerous rule, but maybe it could be fun. Let me tell you exactly how long this rule lasts. First game of the season, somebody hits a home run, 300 baseballs come flying out of the stands, (laughs) all of them in the direction of the guy at second base. This There would be (laughs) mass imprisonment and fines, and the commissioner would be like, oh my god, what have I done? So this yeah. <laughs> this would this would in theory okay it wouldn't even improve home field advantage because the odds of a fan hitting the runner instead of one of the defenders there's a lot more defenders than there are base runners after a home run I'll have you know mm-hmm. so you you know you try to hit him and you might hit a second baseman who's not paying attention or a first baseman or God help you the the starting pitcher or the opener I should say so this would make a difference it would be a terrible difference and it would last about one home run <laughs> yeah I mean I I love the image of the, the base runner <laughs> taking evasive maneuvers on his way around the base pass <laughs> without going out of the baseline I guess but <laughs> stutter steps and like side to side I love that but. The problem is that if this were a rule, then the runner would actually be on the lookout for this. I mean, the reason it it happened with Stanton is that he was not even looking because why in the world would he be? This would not (laughs) be something you expect. But if you have the knowledge that there's a rule that you could be out if someone hit you with a thrown baseball, then your head would be on a swivel. You'd be looking around and it would be really hard to hit a guy from that far away if he knows that the ball is coming. (laughs) So I just... I don't see it happening. I mean, how how rarely do base runners get hit by batted balls? And that's harder to avoid because it's going so much faster and the distance is so much shorter. And this would, I mean, yeah, I, I don't think you should just put like shot putters in the stand <laughs> or something, just sprinkle them all over the outfield to try to get extra outs. It was only a few ballparks where this could happen anyway. You got like right field in the Yankee Stadium, and of course you got the Crawford mm-hmm. boxes in Houston. Like you got to be close enough to the base running because most people can't throw a ball like three hundred feet. I can't throw yeah. a ball three hundred feet. Most people can't. It takes it like a <laughs> professional quarterback. So you'd yeah, just end it up with... to be on the on the top of the green monster. You get yeah. some extra distance from absolutely. That. So yeah, that that fan had a built-in advantage. Like credit, full credit to the fan. I should, yeah. Well, should I even well, say full credit to the fans? Should we be encouraging this? <laughs> Probably not, but it was impressive. <laughs> All right, we will end there. By the way, one more thing about sales that I meant to mention. I'm going to play a very quick clip. He was asked on Thursday to talk about his success against the Yankees this year. And, well, you'll hear his response. Chris, uh, can you talk about your success against the Yankees this year? Uh, No. So I don't know whether he was responding to the lazy talk about phrasing or whether he meant that he didn't want to give away any secrets that had served him well against the Yankees or whether he meant that those games were in April and June and it was a long time ago and it has no bearing on how he'll do now. But that really was all he said. I checked the transcript. Just no. (laughs) All right, then. I sort of respect it. So as I record this outro, the Astros are already victorious. Their parade of right-handed hitters who we talked about earlier eventually broke through against the right-handed Kluber. In theory, that should be an advantage for the Indians' right-handed staff, right-handed lineup for the Astros. But it was not in Game 1. Astros won 7-2 with a bunch of home runs. Brewers are currently leading as I speak, as the Rockies' not-so-great offense continues to struggle. So you can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Just go to that site. Sign up, pledge some small monthly amount. It's quick and easy. Helps us keep doing the podcast. And at some point this month, Jeff and I will do a couple live streams during games for Patreon supporters at the $10 level and up. We'll be announcing when that will happen sometime soon. Following five listeners have already pledged their support. Ross Wasserman, Matt Idigson, Adam Schwaber, Dan Roberts, and Adam Yarkovsky. Thanks to all of you. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. There's always a very active game thread 
dread for every playoff game going on, so it's a good second screen experience or third or fourth screen experience this month. You can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms, and you can keep your questions and comments and other forms of feedback coming for me and Jeff via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. Please enjoy a full weekend of playoff baseball, and we will talk to you early next week. Life is a short, warm moment, and death is a long, cold rest. You get your chance to try in the twinkling of an eye. 80 years with luck or even less. So all aboard for the American tour, and maybe you'll make it to the top. Mind how you go, and I can tell you, cause I know you may find it hard to get off.